Well, my cat doesn't like being hugged, but she doesn't have a choice. <laughs> my cat like, bite my face off. I'm not doing that. <laughs> Welcome to episode 61 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. I'm Sherry. And I'm Rory. And uh, welcome to another episode. How's everyone holding up in our current lockdown? Good. <laughs> Nothing's really happening. <laughs> you know, 2022 hasn't been too bad so far. We just had a few, you know issues here and there yesterday we just had a volcano erupt <laughs> right but, um the underwater volcano right correct in tonga that sent you know a tsunami crossing the ocean so you know mother nature's tried to <laughs> exert her will and power but things are generally still okay <laughs> Here we are, still locked down, contending with a pandemic. What do you two think about, uh, I just read in the news, there's going to be an anti-vax tax, maybe. I think it's starting in Quebec and could happen elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I actually think it makes a lot of sense, like just financially, because it feels like the people that are overwhelming the hospital systems tend to be from a um, per-population metric tend to overwhelm the hospital systems, which means in reality, I feel like they should pay, actually pay more mm-hmm. for healthcare. And it's very similar to actually what a lot of insurance companies are doing in the U.S., where if you're not vaccinated, you get, have to pay a premium, similar to smokers, right? If you smoke, it's your choice, but you have to pay an extra premium because healthcare is more expensive for smokers. Yeah, I'm definitely in favor of it as long as it's all as you said, based on people's personal choices and deliberately putting themselves in health risk. I would never want mm-hmm. to see something like this extended to like people who are born with a certain tendency to acquire certain diseases. And that is not mm-hmm. right. But, uh, but for people yeah. who are like, I'm anti-vax or I'm going to smoke up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a choice, right? You, you make a choice, active choice to make certain decisions and you know, you have to face the consequences in my opinion, but mm-hmm. I did hear that a large wave of people then signed up for their vaccinations in Quebec. So if it works, it works, and I'm here for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, the the alternative would be you just keep letting, uh, you know, COVID rip through the population, and then you have to triage. And I think there's, like, this ethical dilemma where if you triage someone, do you prioritize someone that's vaccinated versus unvaccinated? Mm-hmm. I mean, you probably do because the vaccinated person probably has better chances mm-hmm. because they have the antibodies in their system. So they're maybe better able to fight it off. So I think that does become an issue when you're looking mm-hmm. at triage. Yeah. Do you think it, it uh, evaluation changes? Let's say you have a person who's vaccinated. They maybe just broke their arm. So, and then the doctor says, well, you just broke your arm. You can keep it like that for the next month until we get to it. Mm. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. So, is why I was like, well, do you spend your efforts saving the life of the uh, unvaccinated or let the vaccinated person with just a minor inconvenience, a broken arm, suffer for a month in pain? <laughs> yeah, it does get a little bit cloudier there when it's not directly related to the pandemic and 
health issues mm. arising from the decision not to be vaccinated. Yeah. I know what my animal brain in me tells me, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like there's got to be like some kind of ethical framework to like make these decisions. And like, the simplest thing is just let's not be in this position. Everyone mm-hmm. get vaccinated and then we won't be in this position. I like that solution. But uh, I just saw um, Novak, uh, what's his name? The tennis player, Novak Djokovic. Or right. something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he's being deported from Australia for not being vaccinated. So, oh, really? That's a win. <laughs> yes, he's he's the number one tennis player in the world. I'm assuming you don't follow tennis, but <laughs> not closely. <laughs> no. no, I only knew about uh, that one Canadian star who did really well. But after that, tennis once again fell off my radar. Yeah. Anyway, so he's number one in the world. He's supposed to be playing at a tournament in Australia. Got into Australia on a visa, on a exemption. Uh, but the Australian government has revoked his visa and shipping him off <laughs> back home. Well, I don't have sympathy for it. Yeah, well, to me it's just, you have to follow the rules. You, just <laughs> because you're number one in the world in tennis doesn't mean you're special and get per- special privileges. If anything, it's... Uh... It's a good example of, you know, we're not making allowances for the people in a special status or special position that everybody is subject to the rules regardless. Yeah. But, you know, this pandemic, uh, I I heard of a lot of people coming up with new hobbies like collecting plants and maybe even uh, adopting new pets to keep them company. Um, So do you guys have any pets? I have a dog. I have a greyhound and a little miniature pincher. Uh, the miniature pincher was Allie's before marriage. And the greyhound is, we adopted uh, when we got together. I think that was right before we got married. Um, we got the greyhound and we got her from the racetracks in Florida. So we adopted her from there. So she's our little sweetheart. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I have a cat myself, but Rory, do you have any pets? I don't. I don't own any pets currently, but I've always lived in a household with pets growing up. So I'm very familiar with dogs and dog care and other farm animals. I, I was born on a farm. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So we, we, it sounds like, you know, all of us have animals in our lives and that's the topic of today. How, how did these animals manage to infiltrate our lives? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to hear a figure on how many people during the pandemic ended up adopting pets? How many? 3.7 million Canadians. So that's roughly 10% of our population. Either adopted, purchased, or fostered a dog during the pandemic. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's a lot of people. It is a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. The dogs must be happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully... Uh, that, you know, people who purchased dogs don't end up giving them back or away. But uh, yeah, I think it's a trend that we've seen just because people are so isolated and just need some sort of comfort. I mean, even now we are, you know, stuck in our homes. Well, like not technically stuck in our homes for lockdown, but there's nothing really to do. There's no restaurants open for dining and, you know, we're just kind of sitting at home. So uh, it has been mm-hmm. nice to have, you know, a dog around and to, mm-hmm. to sort of fill your fill your space with love. So, oh my God, I just can't imagine 
what if things get back normal, will our pets just fall apart? <laughs> just like <laughs> our yeah, humans are no longer home. <laughs> they're so used to it now of having their humans at their immediate disposal. What are they going to do? They'll adapt. Pets have adapted over time. <laughs> <laughs> Which segues me into history. <laughs> hey, there we go. So I thought it would be interesting to look at um, sort of pets through history and, and how we got to where we got, you know, with, with owning pets and things like that and what kind of pets we decided to own specifically. And uh, the first known pet was the dog which I don't know if that surprises either of you. Probably not, because dogs were good hunters. And so, uh, you know, people sort of formed this working relationship. Humans formed this working relationship with dogs so that they could take them hunting. Uh, and and it sort of lightened their load, uh, trying to kill animals and capture animals and herd animals and things like that, Right. And there's some contention over the species of dog, and I'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, but there's a scientist uh, who's part of the Royal Belgian Institute of Na- uh, Natural Sciences, and uh, they published some data showing that a 32,000-year-old canine-like skull was found in a cave in Belgium, and that was possibly the first dog. Uh, so 32,000-year-old, which is pretty cool. And and other skulls and, and fossils and things, uh, you know, date back to 14,000 years ago and 8,000 years ago. Like, it's, you know, they've been around for a very long time. I don't know if this upsets you, Kenny, because cats were not our first pets. <laughs> no, no. The, I mean, the, the thing is, cats don't even have the... Typical signs you would see when it comes to domestication. So a lot, um, there's been a lot of scientific scientific research on domesticating animals, and usually the characteristics once you start uh, tweaking, basically selectively breeding animals to become domesticated, like their snouts tend to become uh, shorter, their ears are more floppy. They actually start looking more cuter to humans because we're you know selectively. Uh, select, select me for those traits, but cats don't have any of that. <laughs> cats are still <laughs> murderous little machines. That <laughs> I, are. So. I also read, though, that uh, domesticated animals and maybe cats as well get smaller with domestication over the generations, that they actually shrink in size. Like I read it for dogs that um, after a few generations of dog ownership, uh, they were only ever grew to about the size of adolescence of the original species, that they were mm-hmm. shrinking. From but what about Great Danes? I mean, Great Danes are still pretty big. I don't know when Great Danes started to be domesticated, whether they... No, that's the dog breed, right? The Great Danes yeah. are huge. Mm-hmm. They're like horses, mini mm-hmm. horses. <laughs> yeah, even bigger than greyhounds. So, yeah. yeah, they're pretty big. I mean, maybe their adult size was huge, you never know. Maybe that is Monstrous. their adolescent size. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there, there's a, a lot of contention in terms of like when was the first dog? Because like mm. the research is kind of constantly evolving. Yeah, there's lots yes. of theories and hypotheses about did we like capture some wolves and domesticate them, or did it actually happen more naturally, where wolves are were just attracted to uh, uh, being near humans because you know humans had waste food sources that Mm. they would throw out so Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I know for sure. And and there was a lot of reasons why dogs would want to be around humans. Obviously, our consistent source of food so we can feed them. And, you know, we had fires, so we provided a a place of warmth and safety for them. So, you know, it was a reciprocal relationship. They helped us hunt and we gave them stuff in return, right? Um, and so there are actually paintings and carvings in some of the ancient tombs and campsites that depict our relationship with dogs. Um, in Mesopotamia, there's depictions of uh, what looks like a mastiff dog, uh, so a nice big sort of burly dog uh, participating in a lion hunt. Um, so that's pretty cool that we we actually have, you know, drawings, cave drawings of of our relationships with dogs. Um, and domestic pets were depicted in family life in ancient Egypt. So uh, it's really cool that we have those records of, of having dogs as pets. And greyhounds um, were depicted on hunts and uh, lap dogs were under the chairs of their owners. So greyhounds are a very royal dog and I'm very proud to own one. <laughs> <laughs> I love my greyhound. She's very sweet. <laughs> but she definitely would not be good at hunting. Oh, I was going to ask, like, <laughs> does she, like, chase squirrels or anything like that? Or? Well, yes. No, she would be good at chasing stuff. Um, but they are they are well known to be very um, clumsy dogs. <laughs> and so, and they have very thin skin. So the amount of times I've had to take her get stitches and things like that, because she's just off running in... in in like an off-leash dog park, <laughs> it's bad. She would not be a good hunter. Maybe they were better back then before. before Does she like really step on a twig, step yeah. on a twig and needs you to carry her home? <laughs> <laughs> well, not carry her home, but um, we'd be in the car and I'd turn around and there's a pool of blood there. And I'm like, well, oh. we're not going home. We're going to the vet. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they they actually are very delicate dogs. If they get mm. a cut or anything, they need to immediately get stitches. And sometimes when we're at the dog park, if I look down on the ground nearby and I see blood, I'm like, oh, that's my dog. Gotta find my dog. <laughs> <laughs> Usually it's not too bad. Like, it's I've only taken her for stitches a few times. Usually it's not too bad, but. Wow. Yeah, it really feels like they cannot survive without us. <laughs> no. <laughs> And this may, I mean, this is greyhounds now. Who knows what they were like before. Maybe they were a little bit more, uh, you know, (laughs) less or a little bit less delicate back then. Who knows? But they are good. um, They're good sight dogs. They, you know, catch on to things pretty quick. Uh, And so that's that's what they were used for in in ancient Egypt. Um, And so there were times throughout history where dogs are actually used in like ceremonial status. So uh, dogs and cats were buried with humans about 12,000 years ago. Nobody knows why. Obviously, we draw conclusions of, well, they were probably meaningful to humans. Hopefully they weren't buried alive. Hopefully they were dead and then put with the human afterwards. (laughs) I don't know. Um, it's, It's possible they were buried alive, which would be very sad. But there were also special burials for dogs, and they were given, you know, valuable items in their graves uh, at least 8,000 years ago. So we can see this relationship with our dogs kind of evolve throughout history. Um, Horses and cats were domesticated later. Um, 
there's no evidence from Paleolithic or Mesopotamia that horses and cats were domesticated then. Uh, But in 2000 BCE, they were depicted, horses were depicted in chariot races in the Middle East. So uh, that's sort of when we looked at the domestication of horses. But the Egyptians liked to domesticate a lot of different animals. They tried to domesticate lions and hyenas and monkeys. Uh, There's a Nile goose uh, and dogs before they domesticated cats. So it was a long time before they domesticated cats. Um, And once they did, cats became really popular. I think cats are like this very difficult to tame because you said they are these murder machines. (laughs) And I think that's why it took a long time for us to domesticate them. But the thing, I think there's also debate whether cats are truly domesticated or not. (laughs) Because (laughs) in in, in theory, like if you just left the cat alone, they're fully self-sufficient. They are, you know, a species of animal that can just live on its own without human beings, right? They'll, they can hunt on their own. They can live on their own. They have no need for human beings if they want, right? So, yeah, I but see a, a we, lot we of cats a, in our neighborhood. Yeah, we form a, a close relationship with cats, and we force our cats to stay inside. <laughs> <laughs> We've imprisoned them. <laughs> some people have. Some people let them roam free. There's a lot of cats in our neighborhood, and my greyhound, and like many others of her breed, do not like cats. So it is a struggle to keep her from trying to eat a cat. I don't know who would win, though. (laughs) The cat might win. (laughs) Cats are terrifying. (laughs) Um, But there were some times where pets became uh, sources of food um, when food was scarce. So the guinea pig was one of those animals. So we used to raise guinea pigs so that we could eat them when food was not available, which, which I think is is kind of funny because people love guinea pigs now. I don't love guinea pigs; they scare me a little bit. They're a little bit creepy looking, um, but you know, fish also uh, a bit more of a realistic kind of pet that you would raise. Um, and pets have been used to eliminate pests, uh, so cats, uh, you know, catch the mice and rats. Uh, mongoose catch snakes, all those different things. Um, and so throughout time, we've had different sort of, um, uh, uses for dogs. Uh, so once, once dogs maybe stopped, you know, being useful for hunting, we maybe developed better for hunting. Uh, we looked at the aesthetic of the dog, uh, and Romans, they kept small toy dogs about 2,000 years ago. Um, didn't have a use for these really small dogs. Uh, but they did become popular around the same time as Europe experiencing a big black rat as a major pest. So it mm-hmm. could have been that they were there to get rid of the rats. Um, and then a few hundred years ago, European royalty began making pockets in their clothing so that they could carry small dogs. Um, and then they traded dogs with other people. So it was like, it's like a trading card almost, <laughs> but they were animals <laughs> and uh, they would commission portraits of their dogs. <laughs> I'll trade this chihuahua for, um, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, some curtains. <laughs> <laughs> 
don't have a, um, I don't know, a miniature pincher, I would like one of those. I will trade you my <laughs> chihuahua so that I can have a painting of this little miniature pincher. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> a little bit bizarre in the way that we have dealt with uh, animals. Um, going backwards a little bit, thinking about some of the practices that we have formed around dogs. Uh Specifically within death practices, I talked about how sometimes dogs were buried with humans, but um, there were also some other spiritual reasons why we had dogs. Uh, so sometimes dead people were put out for the dogs to consume, uh, so for the dogs to eat you know, the body, because they thought it was necessary for the dead person's soul to pass through a dog to reach the afterlife. Um, so just a way to reach the afterlife. We've talked about different ways to reach the afterlife, and I'm not sure that's a way I want to go. <laughs> I would like to be consumed by canines, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, ancient Greek Greeks uh, dogs were kept in these healing temples, and they were sort of these therapy dogs uh, because they had this perceived ability to cure illnesses. Um and in the Middle Ages, the church got very unhappy with keeping dogs as pets. Uh, they were very threatened, as often they are. And uh, they suggested that the food that was used for dogs should be given to the poor. Um, and it was also kind of suggested that the church was possibly more afraid of pagan worship of animals than they were of actually keeping animals as pets. Because they get very scared sometimes. Oh, I actually pagans. read... That they were a little bit hypocritical in this and that the monks, nuns, and religious leaders themselves kept pets. And that it was just for the poor and the, the common people that they didn't want to see pets being kept. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> As many things I mean, the church, the church does. being, yeah, the church <laughs> being, being hypocritical? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> I've never heard of that. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so we've kept dogs for a long time, and there's been a lot of debate over where did the first dogs come from? Um, and there are actually people who study this, who look at the DNA within bone fossils and things like that to, to look for domestication of animals. And so uh, there's a lot of debate uh, and some say they came from Europe, and some say they came from China. Um, and so there's been DNA testing done that shows that there's, well, this is one theory. There's multiple, but it shows that there's two branches of DNA. Uh, and so one is from the West, and one is from the East. And uh, so it's believed that one population in the East uh, migrated and broke off and went west so that we had then two populations that grew. Um, however, there are some older dog fossils than the ones found in the east. And so the question is, were there two sets of domestications that happened maybe around the same time or maybe, you know, one developed earlier? So it's now suggested that dogs were domesticated twice. Uh, you know, other research has tested the genomes of 58 modern wolves and dogs and found that the dogs in southern China are the most genetically diverse in the world, suggesting that they originated in Asia and then migrated west. The other side of the debate, uh, they're looking at bones and suggesting that you should have the oldest bones in the center of the origin 
of dogs, domesticated dogs, and moving away from that origin, you find the youngest. Um, however, again, older bones have been found in, in various places, like the uh, old bone, the 32,000-year-old bone that I said was found in Belgium. 15,000-year-old fossils are found in Europe, um, 12,500-year-old fossils in East Asia, and nothing sort of older than 8,000 years in between. So it kind of suggests that maybe there was this dual domestication that was happening uh, maybe potentially at the same time. And so some genetic studies show us that no living group of wolves is more closely related than any other, meaning that the wolves that originally created dogs are now extinct. Yeah, very interesting, this debate. Yeah, yeah, it just means there's so much more research to be done, right? Mm. They, the more ancient bones they find, they can uh, at least uh, measure or uh, analyze the DNA to kind of build that family tree backwards. Mm-hmm. And very, very similar studies have been done on cats as well, where um, they're testing mitochondria DNA in cats. And if you remember from biology, mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> and, and, but that mitochondria DNA doesn't change as, because it gets passed down uh, um, through generations. So they can follow this mitochondrial DNA backwards. And uh, it seems like cats uh, are likely to be kind of originated near the Middle East, kind of uh, Egypt area, mm-hmm. uh, with a, uh, a lot of its traces uh, leading back to a wild cat species called Felis uh, silvertus lubica, <laughs> and in the, in the, basically the northern Africa area. And, yeah, so you, cats are a little, feels like cats might be a little bit more straightforward in terms of where they came from, but probably because, you know, Technically, it feels like cats are still a wild animal. <laughs> we, we haven't done much to cats. Yeah. It's not like, you know, between a wolf and a chihuahua, that's a huge difference, right, <laughs> in terms of genetic change, whereas a cat is a cat. Like, there's, yes, there are different types of cats, but they mostly look exactly like each other. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And and the use for cats is maybe a little bit less... Uh, varied than for dogs, at least when you think about, you know, Paleolithic and times. Yeah, so that's our kind of our history. And it's interesting to think about where they came from and and that science is still being done on that. Uh, Yeah, I think the article that I read with this debate was in 2016. So it's recent research Mm -hmm. uh, that they're still looking at. And as our DNA testing and ability to sequence DNA changes uh, and evolves, we're able to sort of look deeper into that that genome. So it's very interesting. I looked at a tiny bit at history as well, a bit more recent uh, history than what you looked at, Sherry. I wasn't so much concerned with the the origin of pet ownership is when it really took off, which was around the late 18th, 19th century. That's when the middle class really started widespread having pets. We have evidence for this and in the increased profits from the dog tax, which once existed, as well as a bunch of new books on dogs and the first formal dog show, which was in Newcastle in 1859, and the Kennel Club, which was founded in 1873. And some of the reasons for this, like, according to the researcher Ritvo in 1988, there was a big cultural shift that led to people's relationship with nature changing. Once they saw nature as this big threatening force that was beyond their control, but 
as there was more urbanization and economic development, that cultural perspective changed and they started to incorporate nature in, in the form of pets more widespread in society. But another thing I wanted to uh, touch on quickly is, what is a pet? How are we defining pets? Well, Thomas, in 1983, claimed there were three criteria that differentiate human relations with pets versus with other animals. And you two can tell me if you agree with these or not. Number one, pets are allowed in our homes. Number two, pets are given names. And number three, pets are never eaten. <laughs> Contrary no, to your not. guinea pig example, <laughs> Sherry. <laughs> Yeah, it's that last one I would take issue with because there's lots of examples of cultures eating pets like um, in Asia, potentially eating like dogs and things like that. So, I mean, when food is scarce, you got to do what you got to yeah, do, I don't right? No, Yeah, I don't know if like dogs in Asia are kept as pets or kept as like a farm animal, mm. like if, if it's going to be eaten. I think there's... That's fair. Like, that, when you think, yeah, when you think about a cow, right? I mean... Uh, dairy farmers, they love their cows. The mm-hmm. cows are like, you know, it's a domesticated animal. But, you know, eventually this cow <laughs> is going to end up uh, being eaten. So Yeah. And I was going to say, do they give cows names? But I think some people do probably name their cows. So they still I think they that. do as well. I, <laughs> I know of people who have named their cows, even though they know it's going Aww. to end up being eaten. Mm-hmm. I think that when, you know... When things get tough, you know, way back when, and you didn't have a food source, like, you can't keep feeding your pet, so maybe your pet becomes food. So uh, that last one, it depends. I mean, modern times, we don't really eat our pets anymore. We don't eat guinea pigs or, you know, dogs. It's true. But I'm thinking... Oh, actually, there's some places that do eat guinea pigs, though. But I think... I think that it's the same as what you're saying of, like, they raise them in a farm yeah. as a farm animal mm-hmm. versus a pet. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. there are yeah. places that still eat dogs. Like, when I was in Korea, they had a place that served dog, and my coworkers went, and I said, no. No, thank <laughs> no, you. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I love my dog. I will not uh, think about eating other dogs. <laughs> yeah. Well... You've convinced me, though. I, I think maybe that third criteria needs an asterisk beside it that says, when times are good, we don't <laughs> eat our pets. <laughs> uh, moving on to a, a different sort of definition, though. Franklin, 1999, asserted that pets are animals that people acquire and treat the way they do infants or children. And that a lot of the pet appeal comes from their childlike qualities, a.k.a. fur babies. You think that's true? That's true for me. I when I hold my cat, I hold it like a baby, even though she resists. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I carry it like a baby, and the cat's squirming, trying to get away. I'm like, no, you will love me. You are my baby. <laughs> my greyhounds are very independent. Um, I think female greyhounds are are less needy. So, like, she doesn't cuddle or anything, but. I tuck her in in her bed, like I put a blanket over her to keep her warm. So I would say that's like treating her like my baby. (laughs) Yeah. All right. All right. I wanted to get next into uh, some of the roles that pets can play in people's lives. You touched on this a bit uh, earlier too, Sherry. 
And I found that uh, in the study I looked at, it was a lot more diverse than the whole binary portrayal that we get a lot of the time in the media. You know, news media frequently shows us either pet lovers or pet abusers, one of the two extremes. But I think it's more practical to look at some of the more commonplace pet roles in households. Uh, first off, they can amplify existing relations between people in a house, depending on whether they agree or disagree on what the pet's role should be in that house. So they can be a source of conflict, or they can bring people more together. And important to that is how close to a human the person wants to treat the pet, whether they are indoor or outdoor, or sit at the dinner table, sleep in the bed type of pet, or whether they're outside on guard duty. A Purina Pet Institute study found that 95% of dog owners hug their animal on a daily basis. Is that true for you, Sherry? Do you hug your dogs? I'd be the 5% that is not hugging my dog. You don't hug? She does not like that. (laughs) She's very independent. Like I might, I might, maybe not on a daily basis, I might hug her around her middle, but she is very particular in how you pet her and, and love on her, so... Yeah. Yeah. Well, my cat doesn't like being hugged, but she doesn't have a choice. <laughs> my dog would bite my face off. I'm not doing. That. <laughs> my cat. Oh, she knows exactly when she's getting a hug. She starts running away. I'm like, no, nope, you're not coming with me. You get back here. <laughs> yeah, I don't want scars on my face, so <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> Oh, here's a, a funny one from the paw, a paw survey. I'm not entirely sure what a paw survey entails, but they found that adult Americans often have closer interactions with their dog than with their biological parents. A lot to be defined there. What do you define as closer? Or yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of that as well. Like, what's closer? Is it like... You share all your deepest inner secrets with the cat or yeah, the dog. Yeah, maybe that could be it. I mean, in terms of time spent, then yeah, your pet is probably going to win on that front as long as you don't live with your biological parents. But in terms of sharing your secrets, maybe. I mean, the pet's not going to judge you. Pet's going to keep your secret pretty, uh, pretty well. Kenny, do you tell your pet secrets? <laughs> I don't, but even if I did, you know my cat is going to be staring at me, judging me. Like, she just has a judgy <laughs> face. It won't be judgment-free just... <laughs> for Kenny. <laughs> exactly. Oh, gosh. Uh, so in all, about 70% of North American households do have a pet, and almost half consider them to be family. So getting back to this idea that some people clearly view their dogs as similar to people, while others see them as things to provide a useful service... I wanted to delve into some of the reasons behind this difference in perspective. And also to clarify, it's pretty important for uh, pet pet owners can be both lovers and simultaneously users, or lovers and then users at different points in their lives. It's not mutually exclusive in any regard. And of course, we know the more tragic circumstances when a pet goes from being a family-like cuddle buddy on the couch to being relinquished as a nuisance as they get older and develop poor health conditions. But moving away from that, uh, the, the caretaker type of pet owner is more likely to see their pet as a reciprocating partner in an honest, non-demanding, rewarding social relationship. And often caretakers carry the assumption with them that many people, especially non-dog owners, don't think as highly of dogs as they do. They're on a dog-loving pedestal, so to speak. Uh, what do you think about uh, whether dogs and cats actually behave like people? 
have human characteristics versus whether it's just the result of us putting some kind of anthropomorphic projection onto them. And we're just imagining that they act like people. I feel like they're people project. <laughs> Depends animals on what are actions animals. you're they... talking about, yeah. though, because we have animalistic actions like, you know, making noise when we want food. <laughs> So, yeah, my dog does that, and it's very humanistic, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So, Sherry, when you're hungry, do you whine? (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, so, like, no, I I think that for the most part, though, we definitely project. But some of our actions are animalistic, and I think that maybe we, we project most for those. Yeah. Speaking of projection, do you think sometimes, you know, when another... Uh, reason why people have pets as well it almost sends like a social signal out as mm. well that you are you know uh, uh, accepted by a community you're accepted by animals and it kind of signals to society that you know you're a good person yeah <laughs> i think that's definitely part of it it's just another one of those ways that we can show other human beings that we're a good person mm-hmm. yeah and approachable maybe because i feel like you know i feel like if I were walking in the street and I saw someone with a dog. If I wanted to, I feel like I could approach that person and ask to pet the pet, like mm-hmm. pet the dog, if I wanted to. But versus like a random stranger, you would never, <laughs> I don't know, interact with a random stranger. Yeah, someone just walking down the street is different than a person walking down the street with a dog. And maybe you know something about dogs and you strike up a conversation about dogs. Yeah, it's a basis of social interaction. Getting into a little bit more about who are the pet owners, I looked up some of the characteristics that may help us see who will be a pet owner and maybe what kind of owner they might be. So first off, exposure to animals in childhood is maybe the major predictor of having a pet later in life. Is that true for you two? Did you both grow up with pets in the home? I did. I grew up with dogs. I grew up with a dog, but this was back when I was in Malaysia. I was a small child, but the dog was a guard dog it was not a dog you kept in the home cuddled with it was a dog <laughs> to defend the territory so different so i did have a relationship i did have a cuddly relationship with this dog yeah i was like afraid of the dog and like i'm gonna stay away <laughs> oh jeez. was it to defend your territory against other animals or other humans or um humans okay <laughs> just so. curious because I know there are some dogs that, that defend against other animals. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What do you two think uh, happens to a person's perspective on animals as being, you know, positive and supporting maybe animal rights or something? Do you think that depends on how much exposure they have to animals? Or do you think anybody can just support animal rights? It doesn't make a difference whether you have a pet or are familiar with pets or not. I don't know. I feel like anyone can support animal rights i don't know i think it depends on your interest levels um and i think human rights sort of tie in really well with animal rights so if you are interested in human rights maybe animal rights is the next sort of progression um but i think there's lots of people who like animals and want them to be treated well but don't think that they would make good pet owners Mm. that's that's fair I think I might count myself among that category where I don't necessarily want to take on the responsibilities of caring for a pet right now, but I'm definitely in support of any kind of pro-animal causes that I find out there. Okay. I want to 
jump into some demographic factors next. Anderson, 1990, claimed that within low-income black communities, dogs are more often viewed as a source of protection than as pets, kind of like your situation, Danny. He wrote that in the working-class black subculture, dog does not mean dog in the house, but usually connotes dogs tied up outside, guarding the backyard, biting trespassers bent on trouble. As a result, he wrote some African Americans might be perplexed or disgusted by middle-class relations with dogs, like letting them run free in the house and showing physical affection to them. Uh, More recent studies ditched this whole race-specific assumption and just said that uh, it depends more on people's social class than it does on whatever race they might belong to. Uh, What do you two think of the idea that loving your pet, however, is... uh, as opposed to seeing them as a tool, is some sort of class privilege for people who are you know, maybe middle class or upper working class and, and higher, that below that you see it as a tool and above that you see it as a, a loving companion? Well, I think, um, you know, it takes a lot of money to own pets. So if you don't have a lot of money, then you need a good reason to have a pet. Uh, so like a guard dog or, you know, a sheep dog or, uh, you know, something like that, um, versus, you know, not having a reason to have it, but still wanting to have it and you have to feed it. You have to, you know, if it gets sick, you have to take care of it like medically. So I think there could be that, but there's a lot of poor people that have dogs and pets and stuff. Like you see homeless people on the street with, with, dogs and mm-hmm. yeah so i don't i don't know if that's necessarily true well, the thing i can about see where the of... logic is in there but i don't know yeah. that's true yeah and i was going to say the thing about a lot of these uh broad-based sociological studies is they're looking at the the general trend rather than specific instances because you're going to find the whole spectrum if you look at every different person out there but in terms of broad trends would a a lower class person be more inclined to buy a dog because of some use or utility it provides versus the higher class buying it maybe as a status symbol. Maybe they buy one of those tiny little useless yappy dogs and they just carry it around because look, I can care for this rodent essentially. And <laughs> <laughs> this rodent in my purse. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a fan of small dogs either. So <laughs> yeah, me either. I, I, I lean more towards middle to big dogs. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of gender, which gender do you think is generally more effective towards animals? If you had to guess. By effective. Yeah, what's effective mean? More loving towards them as opposed to utility-based. I feel like you want me to say female. Uh, cisgender female. <laughs> <laughs> I would go cisgender male. <laughs> Very carefully considered answers. <laughs> I don't like gender. Gender is a spectrum. What do you want me to say? (laughs) Well, the study I was reading wasn't nearly so careful in this. They just said it's women. It's women. (laughs) Women are generally reported to have more empathetic attitudes toward pets than men. Women are also more typically involved in activism against animal abuse and other activist causes for animals. And it's said that men and women generally value different things about their relationship to pets. Women more often view themselves as a parent, while men more often view themselves as a friend to the pet, but not a parent. Men are also more focused on how the pet looks versus women, being more concerned with the pet's personality. 
And Ramirez argues that men assert their masculine routines with their dogs by taking them on physical activity ventures like hiking or exercising, while women are more inclined to spend the time cuddling on the couch and focusing on intimacy with their pets. What is this nonsense? <laughs> <laughs> I'm general. General Sherry disagrees. Take Sherry it up disagrees. <laughs> Take it up with Ramirez. I don't write this stuff. I just report on it. Um, but Sherry, you walk your dog all the time, don't you? Yes. <laughs> Twice a day. Oh, it's awful. Especially when it's like negative 30 outside. <laughs> it is rather right cold lately. <laughs> yeah. It's snapped to cold. Would we have like a positive mm. three, and then all of a sudden it's negative sixteen? Mm-hmm. Come on, nature. What are you doing? Yeah. Does your Does your dog have a sweater? She has a coat. Yeah, she needs a coat because she has uh, short hair, so she doesn't have anything to protect her against the cold. And she grew up in Florida, but somehow she loves the snow. Like when it snows, she'll jump around and like she's so happy, and her little t- <laughs> tail goes. But when it's this cold. Is she still excited about going outside? She does still love going outside, but it gets to a point where she's like, no, thank you. Can we go back? (laughs) And it doesn't take that long to get there uh, when it's negative 30. We go on really short walks when it's negative 30. We go on longer sort of full block around uh, walks when, when it's less bad. Yeah. Just to be clear, I think dog walking falls under the category of just basic care for your animal i don't think that this study was necessarily excluding women taking their dogs for walks and saying that they only spent the time on the couch it's just that might be the preferred activity or something that you prefer to be indoors intimate with your pet rather than taking them out into the forest on some wilderness adventure or something as as the masculine activity would be as a lesbian woman, a cisgendered woman, I would like to take my dog on a hike in the woods. Does that mean that I fall under the masculine category? <laughs> <laughs> I hate this study. All gender studies suck. <laughs> Continue, Rory. <laughs> All right. It's, it's so broad. Thankfully, we're going to so, move away, it's a spectrum. away from gender now. I'm going to contain myself over here. <laughs> Note to self, gender is a landmine if you want to research studies. Um, But for family status, uh, pet attachment is highest among unattached young adults, the newly married, empty nesters, and the elderly. Families with children score lower on pet attachment. And the theory on this is that it's because the human children replace the pets as the children of the family. What do you guys think about that? Human children, I think, require a lot more nuanced care than animals in the home. So I think that the attention has to be divided mm-hmm. uh, a lot more than, you know, if there were no human children in the home. Because human children need, you know, emotional support, whereas dogs don't really need that emotional support. Kenny, what do you think? So we we can't, like, crate train children or anything <laughs> like that? <laughs> Well, you could, but uh, the law is going to come after you soon. <laughs> oh, what a waste. <laughs> I mean, for me, I've definitely seen this firsthand where a pet went from being a fur baby to getting the cold shoulder as soon as the human children showed up and they took all the priority. So I, I think that this one is actually pretty believable. I want to make a point in my life that when when my human children come along, 
that my animal children don't get neglected that I that I I mean I won't spend as much time with the the pet but I'll still take the pet out for I'll take my dog out for two walks a day and I'll make sure you know she's got some pets in and whatever uh yeah my dog's fairly independent though so I think that if I have children while she's still around then um she'll be fine <laughs> yeah, but I think pets tend to like adapt as well, and they become part of the caretaking mm. family, right? They, mm. I don't know. I, I've known of pets that end up, you know, watching babies and staying close to babies all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've so seen they, that too. Just they, they've gained a new task, a new purpose in life. Mm-hmm. And I've seen them be very protective of young children too. Like if another stranger family member they don't see very often approaches the child and they'll get hostile towards that person. Okay. Just a couple more things I wanted to cover off before I finish with my spiel. Uh, One of them is the benefits of pet ownership. and I'll just list them to get them out of the way. I think Sherry mentioned some of these too. Like they make us feel loved. They help us stay healthy and active. They lower levels of anxiety, loneliness, and depression. And others note that they serve as a safe haven during difficult times. And this isn't totally without some contradictory findings, though. There are a few studies out there that point to ways pet ownership can be a hindrance to human health. Again, pets are expensive, and caring for them can be a a serious problem if you're very low income. But also, a, a 2010 study found that pet owners being less lonely actually depends a lot more on their level of human social support than it does on the presence of a pet. The study found that pet owners and non-pet owners who lived alone had similar levels of loneliness and depression, and that the difference always came from human social support, not from pets. What do you think? Does it make sense that a pet won't fill the void left by too little human interaction? I don't know. I, I mean... Your pet can't really human talk interaction back is to you, pretty... and I think that's the issue yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, human interaction is pretty important, uh, but I, it's almost like pets could be a good stopgap measure to, you know, keep thing keep things going until you're able to interact with another <laughs> human. Yeah, fair. Yeah, but I mean, you know, petting a cat, the, the, at least there's been some indication that. It causes, you know, releases in oxytocin and yeah. endorphins. And yeah, there's, so there's, there's a benefit to, you know, creating some happiness as you pet a furry animal. There has to be something therapeutic to it, right? Otherwise, there wouldn't be therapy dogs and, and things that people draw on to relieve stress. Like, I remember they had therapy dog sessions in uh, university. They would say, though, they're bringing the therapy dogs into the UCC. Come and relieve your stress at exam time. So there's got to be something to it. Chemical, as you say, Kenny. Mm-hmm. There's a suggestion that, you know, petting, you know, a, a furry animal triggers our primate brain, like back, you know, deep inside our primate brains where, you know, primates used to groom other primates. Oh, so, you know, really? nowadays we don't groom each other, but it just triggers... Something in the back of our minds when we pet a furry animal. Kenny, you... I don't know. Obviously, we can't prove that, but it's a suggestion. You've hit on it, Kenny. Now I know what's missing in my life. I don't have somebody helping me personally groom and picking the fleas out of my hair. (laughs) You have a beard. Maybe you could do that. (laughs) They could be petting and combing my beard. That would be wonderful. Okay. Um... 
Last thing I wanted to touch on is the idea of owning exotic pets. I found a study out there about exotic pet ownership in Russia. Quick notes on that, and maybe it'll apply to other cultures as well. I think it does. So one of the motivations of owning an exotic pet is to be a lifesaver. So rescuing a species that's being institutionally killed off, like a a red fox being purchased from a fur trade farm or something like that, or maybe a circus animal or something that's leading a really cruel and unpleasant life, and that's the reason why an exotic animal is being purchased. Uh, There's also accidental owners who acquire a strange pet by chance. I I see lots of stories like this on the dodo where an animal wanders up to a person and just immediately starts showing an unusual attachment or affection towards that person. I've seen it with squirrels, a rooster, a duck, an owl. You know, a lot of these animals are taken in by good Samaritans, but a good number of them are also inexperienced with the kind of care that an exotic pet requires. And so they can do unnecessary harm if they aren't diligent in learning what their unusual pet needs. Of course, there's also uh, the new experience seekers who are actively looking for something different and unusual. My mind went to Mike Tyson and his tiger, although I don't know the story there, whether the tiger was a a rescue of some sort, and I don't want to throw Iron Mike under the bus without researching that properly. Uh, sometimes this type of person also has like a past experience with a particular type of animal that left an impression on them, and that's why they want to have this exotic creature as their pet. Uh, lastly, there's the collectors who are looking for some specific characteristic in an animal to add to their possessions. The only really redeeming trait of them is they tend to be very knowledgeable about their exotic pet often because they want to show them off. So, do you two have any... As, you're, as, as you were mentioning, you know, these exotic pets, uh, I, I just remember there's a TikToker that I follow. She's Canadian, and she has emus. Emus? Oh, yeah, as, I see her yeah. often. <laughs> <laughs> she's amazing. And it's just so funny because, like, one of the emus hates her <laughs> and will <laughs> attack her all the time. Yeah. But the, the other thing is... That emu actually loves her husband. Like, it oh. doesn't doesn't attack her husband. Is it but jealousy? Only attacks her. Is the jealousy? I think it's jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the jealousy. And my favorite part of it is the emu's name is Karen. So. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, Sherry, do you have any thoughts on uh, people owning exotic pets? I don't like it. I don't think people can properly care for them. I mean, we just watched Tiger King over the last couple of years, Tiger King 1 and 2, and, and saw how these animals just don't belong. Like, we, we've domesticated dogs, and now they belong with us. But other animals, they don't belong with us. It's It's a very sad situation. They don't have enough space. They're taken out of their social groups. Uh, all those things. So mistreated to, to um, I don't know, create tricks to show off to humans. I, I don't like any of it. But does that apply to all the, the touching stories that I see on the dodo? Like when, when an animal is just like a, a little baby and its parents were killed and so they took it in and they started nurturing it. Like, like, a, like a duck. Yeah. <laughs> or so. well, but I feel like that's like farm animals. Farm animals are technically domesticated, right? But, yeah. Yeah, they're just not as often seen as pets. Or but I think, but I think like a lion or a tiger <laughs> that should not be in someone's house. 
Or monkeys. Like, monkeys are very social creatures and need to be with other monkeys. So, mm. yeah. But if it's if it's one of those life and death things, no sympathy there. Well, isn't there rehab centers and yeah. things like that? Yeah. All right. All right. You've convinced me. No exotic pets. <laughs> I do have some really good stories about some interesting pets that people have owned throughout history. Some I only famous have, ones, a few. perhaps? Maybe, maybe a few famous ones in there. Just a few stories. <laughs> Go ahead, Sherry. Uh, okay. 16th century astronomer. And I don't know how to say his name very well, but I think it's Tycho Brahe. He had a pet moose. A pet moose? Interesting. Yeah, a moose. Oh, okay. <laughs> moose are huge. Those are dangerous. <laughs> I, know. I know. But apparently this moose would roam free during parties and was known to consume more alcohol than some of the guests. <laughs> and just sort of be hanging around and just drinking beer and <laughs> whatever. I thought that one was interesting. Unfortunately, the way this moose died was because, allegedly, the way this moose died was because it drank too much one night and then fell down the stairs. Oh. Um, so a little bit sad. So don't feed your moose alcohol <laughs> if you have a pet moose. But I thought that was a cute one because, yeah, they are they are pretty territorial and can be dangerous mm-hmm. uh, in certain circumstances. So I was surprised at that one, but I liked it. They're like a freight train, too. Like, I've seen videos of them just plowing through the snow mm. towards vehicles and stuff. Like, like it was nothing. Like, it doesn't take them any effort to just blast through. Mm-hmm. They're powerful creatures, for sure. Audrey Hepburn, uh, she took on a role um, in the film Green Mansions in 1959. And uh, the role came with a baby deer. And it was hoped that, that the baby deer would sort of create a bond with Audrey and that would show through the film. And so Audrey kept the uh, the baby deer after filming and she sort of made a little bed for it in her bathtub and, and it used to roam around her estate. I don't know <laughs> what happened to that one, but uh, I thought that was cute. <laughs> I hope the Bambi had a good life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lucius Licinius Morena was a Roman consul in 62 B.C., and he kept 6,000 moray eels around his property. <laughs> and uh, he often fed them live slaves, which is sad. But yeah, a lot of eels around his house. Was this just an intimidation factor tactic? Like, I have a moat of eels. <laughs> Don't <Could> cross be. <laughs> me. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> President John Quincy Adams was gifted a pet alligator from the Marquis de Lafayette. And was he decided to put it into a bathtub in the east room of the White House. Uh, <laughs> and so he really enjoyed when guests would come over and they walked into the bathroom and they found an alligator in the bathroom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> King George I, he found... Uh, well, this one is sad. <laughs> we'll do one sad one and then one happy one. And then Good. <laughs> Make it a roller coaster. Don't just drop <laughs> us down. Bring us back up again. King George I, which is, you know, one of our wonderful colonialists, mm. he found an abandoned child living in the woods in 19 or in seven sorry, in 1725. And uh the child was given the name Peter the Wild Boy. Uh he couldn't be taught to speak and he was sort of um walking on all fours. 
So King George was very fascinated by this little boy and he took him home to his palace and he kept the boy as a pet and uh, the boy was known as a human pet. So we are even keeping human pets. <laughs> mm, that's kind of dark. <laughs> very, dark. Yes. very, very dark. Yes. Um, which is why I said this one was a sad one, but we will end on a, a happy, funny one. Um the 19th century poet uh, and writer, Lord Byron, and he went to Trinity College, um, and the college one um, decided to make a rule that would forbid um, collegiate people living on campus to have a pet dog. And he had a pet dog that he loved, and he wanted to bring that dog, but he was not allowed to. And so uh, he clarified the rules on on, you know, the pet that he uh, was allowed to have. And it was just that it was canines that he was not allowed to have. And so he decided that to spite the college rules about dogs, he would uh, find a pet bear to be his roommate. (laughs) (laughs) He brought a pet bear onto campus to live with him. Yeah. Way wow. to stick it to the system. Yeah. <laughs> Where are your rules now? <laughs> I saved that one for last because that one was my favorite. Because I think that's awesome. You know, stick it to the organization. <laughs> stick it to the college. Yeah. I'm taking in a, a pet. <laughs> I'd love to be yeah. that campus security guard just like looking at this and like flipping through the rule book. What do I do? <laughs> There's nothing in the rule books for bears. I can imagine he was a bit of a pill to that college. Mm, yeah. Caused <laughs> yeah. a lot of trouble. Yeah. But speaking about colleges, universities, did you know that there are degrees for anthrozoology, which is the uh, study of um, essentially you know, how animals occupy human social and cultural worlds and our interactions with animals? So you can get a degree in this. And I looked at the curriculum um, for a particular uh, university in the States where you have uh, four senior projects that involve canines in training. You know, two of them, you'll be working on scent detection. One of them on, um, uh, what's it? Oh, one of them is specifically for like bed bugs detection, which is pretty cool. And then the other two are around therapy and high-level obedience training. So literally, you could be getting a degree just playing with dogs. <laughs> like That, to me, is the best degree in the world. I wish someone had told me about this possibility before I ever started down a foolish course like sociology. It could have been a <laughs> dog lover degree. Give me that. You've wasted your life, Rory. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> Yeah. But another one I want to touch on, uh, going back to cats, have you guys ever heard about how, like, there's this parasite in cats that can change, you know, your mind or kind of control your mind? Have you ever heard of that before? I've read about mushrooms that release spores that can control insect minds and turn them into zombie insects. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's, yeah, there's this uh, parasite that uh, lives in uh, mice and rats. 
uh, that then get you know passed on to cats when cats cat uh, eat mice or rats, and then this parasite gets passed on to humans because we interact with cats. And this uh, parasite is called a uh, Toxoma plasma gondii, and it's uh, it doesn't really you know cause any major issues with human beings. But there's been some studies that have kind of showed maybe it doesn't like cause any harm in humans, but maybe it alters our behavior. Because Ooh. what this parasite does to mice and rats is it's been shown to cause mice and rats to take on more risk, to be more bold, which then allows a cat to eat it because you know <laughs> the, the mice is taking on more risk. So there's this hypothesis that maybe uh, when we get infected, we take on more risk in life as well. Um, so uh, they, there's been a few studies. I feel like there's probably some controversy here because there's a lot of conflicting studies. But you know, one study in New Zealand uh, measured um, about over 800 people. They took blood samples, kind of followed them from birth to uh, the age of uh, 38 and tested for antibodies to this uh, parasite. Uh, but they met, you know, people that were infected with uh, this parasite, about uh, 28% of people uh, tested positive. So they didn't find any differences in terms of, you know, did they have more mental health issues, did they commit more crime? So they didn't find any differences. Whereas another study found that... Uh, uh, in one study where uh, 370 people in Turkey and also 600 people in uh, Czech Republic actually showed that people that tested positive with these antibodies were more likely to be in car crashes. Mm. And then there was another study that showed um, people that uh, took uh, entre- entrepreneurial studies in business versus, you know, study biology the people that study that decide to go towards entrepreneurial business studies were uh, more likely to have tested positive as well for this uh, parasite so interesting I don't know if this is the definitive case that you know this parasite causes people to take on more risk but Maybe. <laughs> I immediately started thinking of like the extreme risk takers, like the skydivers and those people who mountain bike down actual mountains mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like, ah, your type A personality is actually a parasite. Mm-hmm. What do you think yeah. of that? Yeah. I don't know. If I, so I have a cat. I mean, there's, there's probably a chance I'm infected <laughs> as well. Kenny, you but risk like taker. I, but I don't know if I, I take a lot of risk. So I, although... I will admit, I have skydived and <gasps> bungee jumped. Well, <laughs> so, I think so, you have your cat and to thank all for that. those happen after I got my cat, so oh. maybe. <laughs> so it's totally possible. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then uh, I also mentioned dogs sniffing uh, uh, for bed bugs, but there's a new... A study where uh, they've been shown that dogs can actually sniff out COVID-19, which I think is pretty cool. So um, the dogs have, can be trained to uh, sniff out for people infected with COVID-19, but it's tricky. It's actually not very easy to get them to do this because 
every human being has a different scent. So you have to train a dog it, with multiple age groups, mm-hmm. with multiple ethnicities. And there's just no standard right now in how you actually train dogs to sniff out COVID. So um, I don't know if this is going to become a popular thing versus like bomb detection. There's like a standard of how you train the dog, the chemical compounds for you know, bomb bomb making are pretty standard so you can train your dog specifically for those chemical compounds and the other issue is it's pretty expensive so um, to actually train a dog to sniff for covid it can cost up to uh, sixteen thousand dollars to train one dog um, and, which is still cheaper than actually what you would need to spend for training for bomb uh, for bomb detection mm. for bomb detection it can cost between 33,000 all the way to $46,000 so pretty expensive to train a dog <laughs> to kind of sniff this so well yeah. totally possible dogs have also been known to sniff sort of other diseases in humans like or not necessarily diseases but like there are dogs that that um can sort of tell when you're going to have a seizure that have been trained in that way. And I think that it Mm. has to do with something uh, that changes in sort of um, your chemical uh, balance um, that they can sniff, um, which I find super interesting or like low blood sugar for diabetic people and things like that. Like they can be trained to sort of sniff that out which is which is fantastic. It's it's cool what what the the power of the nose in the dog can do. <laughs> yeah. That's why dogs are so awesome. <laughs> they they can help everyone. I do think this covid thing covid dog sniffer would be a fad though because we're hoping that covid is not going to be so debilitating for the rest of our human existence, right? Like we're hoping that it can just kind of, you know, calm down and not be like, it might still be around. We might experience it. Like we get a flu shot every year, but it won't be quite as debilitating and scary. Cross your fingers. Oh God, should I have Cross knocked on fingers. here? I'm going to knock on wood there. Knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> I'm just I don't know. There's still a lot of anti-vaxxers out there. <laughs> There's a lot of anti-vaxxers out there that will keep circulating this. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Oh. Anyways, yeah. So one day I feel like I will probably get a dog, but not as long as my cat is still alive. That's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. like dogs? Maybe. I thought you were just into cats. No, I, I love dogs. I love dogs. This cat really just was forced into my life, so <laughs> we tolerate each other. <laughs> the, the story is this cat was trying to break into my friend's house, and then I was guilted into taking the cat Aww. because, you know, I I had my own place, and they, people were saying I was selfish for not helping the cat and all that, so we just became roommates. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's really wow. sweet, Kenny. Yeah. Don't oh, sell yourself short on that, great. Kenny. That's wonderful. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also love cats, but my greyhound would eat a cat, so could never have cats. You, you just need a cat that's bossier. 
that can defend itself. <laughs> I don't want to take my dog to the vet even more than I already do. <laughs> you come home to a new pool of blood, you're like, oh, not again. <laughs> yeah, come on, let's get in the car, go to the vet again. <laughs> oh, okay, well, that was fun. So thanks for listening, everyone, and stay safe. <laughs> Neuter your your dogs and cats. <laughs> yes. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> Isn't that what that uh, TV presenter always says? Get your yes. dogs What's his name? and neuters. <laughs> I have no idea. I can't remember. Uh, although I should remember it. He was Price is Right, right? Yeah. Bob yeah. Barker? Price is Right. <laughs> yeah, Bob Barker. At the end of every show. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll see you next time. See ya. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.